Good morning, everybody. Did that freak you out? Because if you were praying, your eyes should have been closed. And you're like, who's that other voice? And it's me. Hi, I'm Adam. I'm the associate pastor here at Antioch, and I'm so glad to be with you all. And I have the privilege of continuing on in a series that we are doing called Rhythm of Revival. And just to kind of catch you up, God has been, been stirring our hearts. He's been, he's been, I feel like, bringing an invitation of something greater than what we typically operate in as a people. And there's been this response of us saying, okay, God, if you're doing something, how do we get an agreement with you? And how do we not create opposition to you? But like having rhythm, we want to be in step with whatever you're doing. Amen? And that what, how we want to live our lives in general. And so there's this series that we're walking through, and it's more than just a series. It's, it's a season of life that God's bringing us as a people to say, hey, there's more than what you've experienced. And God is saying, I would like to invite you into more. And so we want to be in agreement with that. So as we say yes to this, there's this idea that I want to kind of hit on here. And when I say revival, what I want you to know is the Bible's really clear that God is always for you. He loves you. He wants to pour out his blessings on you. He wants to put shine his favor upon you. God's disposition, his heart motives is for your good and for his glory. And what's crazy is he's most glorified when we find all of our needs and all the goodness met in him. So that is always his posture. But when we use the word revival, what I want to specifically mention is that we're talking about something even more than just the general truth of God being a good God. But it's when his Holy Spirit is poured out on his people in such a way that his presence and his power is manifest. His presence and his power is dominant and transformative in such a way that people say, wow, God is in this place. Not just, oh, I agree that God is everywhere and I have good theology, but God shows up in such a way that you say something is changing. It's impossible to be in the presence of God in this way and leave the same person. That is what we're hungering for, and that's what we're longing for, is when we see the power and the presence of God married together in a tangible way for his people to live in it. And what's interesting is as I study revival, as I read books and listen to lectures and talk with people smarter than me about revival, I find that there's this basic trend of conversation where we say that revival is a, a seasonal situation where God shows up to kind of give a boost in the arm to the church for what's going on in that season, or maybe it's to bring correction and redirection to a wayward people that they might shift and go in the right way. And, and it's, it's, it's something that ultimately comes to an end. But the problem that I have with that is that when I read the Bible, I actually don't see any nuance of that in Scripture. It doesn't tell me that God loves to pour out His blessings and then stop. He loves to show up in power and move and heal and restore, and then He wants to cut it off. I don't see that. But the reason why people have come to that conclusion is because every revival that's ever happened in human, biblical, or modern history has ceased. It has happened. So what we've done is we've created our conclusions on revival by studying revival versus God's heart. And I'm feeling convicted by that, and I'm feeling stirred by that. Like, God has more for us than just to show up sometimes and be kind sometimes and manifest sometimes. He wants to be with his people all the time. That is what we see in, throughout the Council of Scriptures, this desire to continually show up. The problem is, is that we see that it's man who quenches revival, not God. Sin kills revival. It kills it. It stops it. And what we see is in Scripture, there's, there's imagery that God gives. And one imagery that he gives is the idea of an altar. 
And God says, okay, here's an altar, and I'm going to pour out my fire, my presence on this altar. I'll, I'll, I'll light the fire, but you as the people of God, the priests of God, you're called to steward the flame. And when the church, when people of God are stewarding the presence of God, the fire keeps burning. But the moment we turn our back on that fire and we say, let's go find other fires, is when the fire starts to go out. Does this make sense? There's this, this imagery shows out consistently throughout Scripture. And we are called the royal priesthood. It's what the church is called as believers. And we're called those who are called to steward the very flame, the very fire, the very presence of God. It's the privilege that we have. So much so that the Bible says that the world knows that God exists based on how we love one another, the way we do life together, the way that we steward this, the presence of God as a people. The world looks at the church and says, wow, there's something peculiar about you. It actually uses that word. You're a peculiar people. You're kind of strange. You do things a little bit different, right? But it's because of how we host the presence of God. But unfortunately, history has shown that we, we as the church, we as the people of God, have ebbed and flowed inconsistently. We're, we're devoted to the Lord. We love the Lord. We're submitted and surrendered to the Lord. His fire comes. He moves in power. He brings healing, restoration, revival. And then we get complacent. We get comfortable. We get compromised. And all of a sudden, the fire gets quenched out, and then we do our own thing. We deal with the consequence of those sins, and all of a sudden, we're uncomfortable, and we realize, oh, what are we doing? We're idiots. Lord, help us. And we start to cry out to God again. And in his mercy, what does he do? He comes and he restores us and he picks us up and he cleans us off and says, I love you and let's do life together. And we start to do life with him again and then we repeat the cycle, right? Have we not seen this? It's all throughout the Bible and it's all in life experience. My own heart has had that journey about a million times. Like surely I'm not the only one in the room. But sin is unfortunately what kills us in walking in intimacy with God because sin separates us from God. It's what removes the intimacy that we've been walking with the Lord in. And I want to read a quote real quick from Walter Kaiser. He writes a book called Revive Us Again. And it's a book that studies revivals. And specifically in biblical revivals, he writes this. Nothing so separates us from the Lord as sin. It is this thief that robs us of the benefits of our standing in the Savior. It is this blockage that renders us impotent before the present system of evil and wickedness. Alas, due to the corrosive and corrupting power of sin the believer with all of his mighty potential, the salt and life for which this world hungers is unable to function as intended. These two tragedies, the tragedy of our separation from God and the tragedy of our uselessness, are reasons enough to call for an immediate confession of sin and a prayer for God to begin reviving work in every one of us. Sin kills revival. But what I want to propose this morning is that repentance ushers it in. Repentance is the starting block for experiencing a breakthrough in the Lord. And I don't know what you come in this room believing. I don't know what you come in this room caring and experiencing in your life story. But no matter the case, God is clear that he moves upon and draws near to a repentant heart. Whether it's a season of victory or a season of struggle, I pray that the fruit of this morning is that we would get low before God so that he might in his due time exalt us up, that he might show up in power and move in such a way, not just for a season, but that we learn to steward and cultivate the move of God that is sustainable revival in our community. This is, I believe, what God wants to do. And a key passage that we've been using throughout this series is 2 Chronicles 7.14. So I just want to read that real quick. It says, If my people 
who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So what this is telling us in 2 Chronicles 7 is it's reminding us that if we turn from our wicked ways, if we repent of sin and turn from them, it is an extremely important and necessary prerequisite. It is a requirement for revival. Let me put it really simply. No repentance, no revival. Hard hearts resist the Lord. Or maybe the other way around. God resists hard hearts. Because the Lord tells us that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, then he'll raise us up. But if there's a hardness of heart and an unrepentant spirit, God has to, unfortunately, not because he enjoys it, but he is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. And he can't entertain rebellion. And so he must resist it because he loves us. Sometimes the mercy of God is letting us experience the consequence of our sins. It feels horrible. We don't like it, but it wakes us up. It makes us call out to God again, God, show up, I need you. I was trying to read through because we were, we're looking at biblical revivals, times where we see God move in power and redeem and pull back people who are wayward in Scripture as we're going through this series. The problem is every one of them has the component of repentance. Every one of them has this nuance of what it means to be holy and how holiness ushers in the move of God. And so I'm like, where do I even begin? But one that really captivated me is one out of Exodus 32. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Exodus 32. And I want to set the stage for us of what's going on. So this ebbing and flowing of God's people kind of drawing near, walking with the Lord, beginning to compromise, going into great sin, God having to resist them. They deal with the consequence of their sin. They call it to God. This cycle has been going on and on throughout human history. And sometimes it, it's led, led to great seasons of, of strife, one in which led to 400 years where the people of Israel were in captivity to the Egyptians. And then we know the story probably. We've probably seen Prince of Egypt or whatever. And we know that Moses shows up on the scene, right? Reluctantly at first, but ultimately in obedience. And he helps usher the people of God out of captivity, right? And it's amazing. I mean, God does crazy stuff. We're talking, he um, brings plagues. He divides a sea, the Red Sea, into two and allows people to walk on dry ground. That's pretty nuts. He feeds them when they're out in the desert with quail and with manna. Uh, when they're thirsty, he brings water from a rock. So, like, God is meeting the needs supernaturally. He's showing up in power and in presence, and he's leading his people. He does, you know, a, a cloud of fire at night and a, and, a, and a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night and leading the people through the wilderness. He is leading his people. And then what we have is in verse, uh, chapters 19 through 24 of Exodus, we have where the people of God begin to renew their covenant with God to be faithful to him. Because they just came out of captivity because they weren't. And so they're saying, okay, God, we're going to do this over again. We're going to be faithful to you. Well, I want to explain real quick what a covenant is and why it matters. Where this first shows up is it shows up in Genesis chapter 15 with Abram. Abram, who becomes Abraham, is walking and God meets with him and says, Abraham... I want to make a covenant with you. A covenant is an agreement between two parties to say we will commit fully, wholeheartedly, and forever to this agreement, and it's to reach this common goal. So they get together, and God says, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you that you and your descendants will be my people who become the Israelites. He says, okay. And he says, and the covenant on the other end is that I will be your God. So you will be my people, and I'll be faithful to you, and you will be, and I will be your God, and you will be faithful to me. Can we make this covenant? Can we agree to this? 
And he says, yes. And just to give you an idea of how intense these covenants are, they're not like pinky promises. It's not like, you know, hopefully you'll keep it. Or even like a contract, you know, I'll sue you if you don't. Like, this is, this is a big deal. Because what they do is, and this is how they would practice it in ancient Near East back in those times, they would cut a ditch, they would take animals. In this context, Abraham, they took a heifer, a ram, and a goat. They split them completely in half. Pretty graphic, right? All the blood poured into the ditch of all three animals. Okay? They put half the carcass on one side, half on the other. And what they would do when they'd make a covenant was that the lesser party would pass through the ditch. So like if it was a landlord who said, hey, I'm going to let your family and your descendants rent from me, we'll make a covenant together that forever you have rights to be on my land, but you, you're covenanting to like paying me this much, to treating the property this certain way, but forever you'll have rights to it. So I'll be faithful to let you be here as long as you're faithful to take care of the land and pay me what's, what's due me. And they would make an agreement, and then the tenant, not the landlord, would pass through the ditch communicating this. If I break our covenant, may it be done to me as it was done to these animals that I may be split in two. That's pretty intense, right? But what happens in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham and God? Abraham is about like he's taking his shoes off, you know, getting ready to get down to the bloody ditch. Ugh, gross, right? But all of a sudden God stops and says no, and it says uh, uh, this this smoking fire pot is how it describes it, with a torch, a blazing torch in it. So it's this symbol of God's presence and his power represented in fire manifests. He can see it with his eyes. And it floats by. This is crazy, right? The Bible's nuts for the record. And all of a sudden it goes by and it passes between the ditch and God goes between the dead animals. And what God just says to Abraham, it says, may it be done to me, Abraham, like it is to these animals, if I don't continually show my faithfulness to you and your descendants. What? This is crazy. The creator of the universe puts himself on the chopping block of consequence if this thing doesn't work out. Is this not insane? But this is what happens. And this is why we see God being the perfect bridegroom and us, the bride, being a horrible, unfaithful, adulterous bride time and time again throughout history, Right? And God is always saying, I'll take you back and I love you. I'll take you back and I love you. Yes, you turn from me, turn back to me again and I will restore you. You want to be revived? Come to me and I will revive you. You just need to repent, turn from your wicked ways, come back to me and I'll restore you. Does this make sense? So now we find ourselves in Exodus and in 19, chapters 19 through 24, we see that they're renewing their covenant. They're reminding themselves of how they're supposed to be faithful to God as their forefather Abraham was. And they're saying, yes, we're going to do this. And he even explicitly in Exodus 20 says, do not make any gods to go alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. He actually spells it out like, don't commit adultery. Okay? Or not adultery, idolatry. But don't do the adultery thing either. And he says, he says be faithful to me. Be loyal to me. And they say, okay, that sounds great. And so they, they make this covenant. And right after Immediately after this covenant is sealed and agreed upon and renewed, and they're, we're going to do it, we're going to be the people of God. God says, Moses, come up Mount Sinai. I want to spend time with you. And so he climbs up this mountain, and he gets up there, and he's spending time with the Lord. And as he is, the people on the ground below the mountain start to get restless. Man, Moses is taking a long time up there. What's going on up there? And they start to question. They start to get a little uncomfortable. And then what happens is as they become impatient, not just with Moses, but with God, vain imagination sets in. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, where you feel impatient with God's timing on things. 
But then you start to get vain imagination. Does God really even hear me? Does God even really care? But that's what they start to do. They're like, man, what's going on? And then the vain imagination steamrolls so fast, they start to think, I think Moses got struck by lightning. He's dead up there. Our leader's dead. He wasn't even a good leader anyway. So then they start to question his leadership. Even though he's the one who helped go and confront a pharaoh of a nation to get them out of captivity. And they're like, yeah, man, what's going on? Something's up. We've got to do something. And they get really restless. And this is what happens in verse 30, or chapter 32 of Exodus, verse 1. Read it with me. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As from this fellow Moses, this joker over here, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't even know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them. So I want to pause here first of all. So they immediately go to Aaron. Aaron is the brother of Moses. He's the current like, leader, and he's been a leader with Moses this whole process, but he is the stand-in leader while Moses is at the top of the mountain. And immediately go and they start to, to mob around him and try to talk him into, hey, we've got to do something. We need, we need something to follow. We need, we need leadership. This is bad leadership. That's a, we'll find some reason to blame somebody for us to not be faithful. right? And, but what's surprising and upsetting is it doesn't take a whole lot of protest we don't get a whole lot of protest back, actually, from Aaron to the people. He quickly is in agreement, and he does not remain faithful. He says this in verse 3, or in verse 2, Aaron answers them, Take off the gold earrings that your, your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said to people, These are our, uh, your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So quickly, so quickly has the people just broken their covenant that they made the day before with God. Isn't this nuts? Like, we act like we're like, oh, you know, like, I have no idea where this came from. It's, just, it's like our devotion is so shallow to the Lord. And we see this with the people of Israel. And then they go to Aaron, who you think, okay, Aaron's going to be our guy. He's going to step up and be like, cut it out. No. But he doesn't. Very little of any protest that we know of. And he's like, all right, give me your earrings. And he makes a golden calf. And he, is, he gives them something. And then the people say, this is the gods who brought us up out of Egypt. They give these golden statues, this thing, this material, temporary thing, all the credit for what God just did for them. Isn't that absurd? But how often we give other things credit than the Lord. It's so easy to look at Israel and be like, let's pick on them. They're idiots, let's be honest, right? No, we are just as easily duped, I promise you. But what makes matters even worse, and for the record, Moses is only on the mountain for 40 days. So we're not talking like years have passed and it's been like forever, where's our leader? We're talking a few weeks they start to compromise and give themselves whatever they can. This is super quick, you know, um, sliding from what is true. But what makes matters worse is that in verse 5, it says, when Aaron saw this, after they communicate, these are the, this is the, the gods whom brought us out of Egypt, it says, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival to the, what's that word? To the what? Is that not confusing? Like, Hold on, you just built an idol and everybody starts to worship it and say that it gets all the credit for any prosperity that they're having as a people. 
But then all of a sudden you build an altar in front of that idol. And then you say, hey, let's have a festival unto the Lord. What happens is I think what's happening in Aaron is he's realizing the tension that, hey, we're veering away from God. So what we'll do is, what if we commingle our, our worship? What if we have some true worship to the one true God? But what if we also have some worship to all the other stuff too? Surely they can kind of, we'll just have one big hodgepodge party. Won't that be nice? We'll just see if we can all kind of fit it in the same bag. It's not a big deal. It's still to the Lord. Do we not do this as well? Don't we declare out of one side of our mouth our devotion and allegiance to the Lord, and then out of the other side of our mouth, we're absolutely compromised in all the things we're giving ourselves to that we know is not, incongruent, not in agreement with the Lord? But that's what they start to do. They start to have this like perversion of worship where they try to justify it as if it's unto God, but we know that it's completely compromised. Sin begets sin in its wake. I'm trying to think how to say this. The sin of questioning leadership in the context of Israel led to the sin of embitterment and disgruntledness in their hearts that led to groupthink and gossip and vain imagination as a people that led to ultimately creating a completely false God that they began to worship that led to a perversion of a culture within 40 days, mind you, to a, a people who now doesn't, doesn't even know how to worship God rightly because everything is just, inter, just muddled together and they're like, oh, it's okay, it's all the same thing. They don't even know what truth is anymore. They've lost all, all bearing of north, which way to go, right? This is unbelievable. The sin begets sin in its wake. Do not think that small compromises remain small. They will absolutely grow in our lives. In verse 6, it says, So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat, drink, and then got up and, and, and to indulge in revelry. Let me explain what that means. So it goes from one sin to the next sin to the next sin, compromise to compromise. This revelry, what this means is they began to get drunk and have orgies. They began to compromise in sexual sin. And they began to cast off any sort of conviction or sense of allegiance to God or what was pure or right or noble. And they just gave themselves to anything and everything they wanted. All in 40 days. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. An unrepentant heart shuts down intimacy with God and it creates separation. I don't know why in our culture we think repentance is a bad word. It's like dirty word that we don't like to use in our mouth. It's like, it's, I think it's because of how we associate it with how our culture does it. We think repentance is shaming somebody. Rubbing their nose and their mistakes and making a public display about what a fool they are. Or something. I don't know. I think that we've adopted wrong theology about what real repentance is when repentance is opportunity for right standing with God. Why would we not want that? Like, why would we not want to be reinstated where all the shame and all the embarrassment and all the compromise is gone? And we can stand there, not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done. We can stand with our head held high and our shoulders back and say, Thank you, God, that I'm not being crushed by my own iniquities. 
because I deserve to be. The Bible teaches us that every person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of that sin is death. The Bible is clear that sin results in eternal damnation. We deserve hell. But God in his great mercy and love for you and me sent his only son Jesus that he might take on all the consequences, all the pain, all of what is rightfully due for the sin. He took it on to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus beating the grave, defeating sin and death, paved a way that you and I don't have to be crushed by our sins and iniquities. This is the gospel message. This is why Jesus deserves full allegiance. When you're sitting there saying, well, I can worship God and I can worship these other things. No, you are living a compromised life. You cannot have two masters. And Jesus, as a Savior, deserves full allegiance, full devotion, saying, God, I repent of all things. I turn 180 from my sin. I turn away from it in Jesus' name. And I have a renewed mind. I, I change the way that I'm thinking. I used to think this way, but I change my mind agreeing with you and not with a lie anymore. This is what God is inviting us into. Because sin separates us from God. It kills, it kills relationship with him. And we see this that in Exodus 32, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down there. Go down there. Because your people, you notice he doesn't even say my people? He is upset. Your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them and made for themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and they have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So he's saying, let's start over. Moses, you're still with me. I'll start over with you, but let's get rid of everybody else. And you know what? God isn't at fault for that. That could be a just consequence to sin. But what's so beautiful is that even though he's always just and he always has consequence for sin, he also delights in mercy. And he is willing to hear a repentant people. So God is just, and he is above and beyond fair. He's actually unfair. He's unfair to himself, and he's more generous to us than we deserve. But there's a day and time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it tells us that there's a day and time where every one of us, all people on all that's ever lived, will stand before the Lord and be held account for how we live. Does that not make you feel sober-minded right now? You're like, what? Really? Like, he's actually going to, like, look at me face to face and say, how did you live your life? And... You're going to have to answer that question before the Lord. But what I want to challenge you is why wait till after you die to be judged? Why wait? Why wait to that moment to say, okay, God, here's all that I've done, and I'm really sorry, and whatever the process is that we go through to try to repent him then. When we have the Spirit of God today that wants to show up in the form of conviction on our hearts and say, allow me to judge you now so that you might have the opportunity now to turn from your wicked ways, to repent that I might forgive you and I might heal your land. I think maturity in the Lord is learning that we can go to him at every moment of any day right now. 
And you're sitting there saying, I can't face him, I've done too much, or if he really just knew how big my sin was, do you know how big his cross was that he bore for you? It trumps any sin. It was not enough for all people but you, for the record. That's arrogance and thinking so. But he says, oh, allow me to come bring judgment on your heart today, church, that you might humble yourself before me, turn from your wicked ways, repent of your sin, that I might hear from heaven, and I will come and forgive you, and I will heal you. That is the heart desire of God today. He wants to meet you right where you are. He wants to restore you. And what's so beautiful is that Moses, knowing the heart of God, he actually pleads on behalf of the people. He says, God, we've sinned. We've turned from you. Will you please forgive us? And then he, he starts beckoning on the faithful covenant of God. Listen to this in verse 13. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. If you're willing to repent, he's willing to be merciful. It's in his nature and desire to do so. But if we do not repent, we are keeping ourselves vulnerable to the consequence of our sins. In Leviticus 11.44, it says this, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. So I want to read this because there's a challenge to be like God, which seems almost, well, it seems impossible. You're like, you're holy. How am I supposed to be holy like you are holy? But one thing I want you to understand is in ancient Near East, Near East thinking, so in antiquity, think long time ago, Bible times, okay? Old Testament time, Jewish worldview. They approached just faith in general and God in general and their walk with uh, the Lord in general different than how we do in our culture today. We like to think of our religion as maybe like a hobby, like a sports. And we say, oh yeah, I play sports. That's something I do too. When they would say it's a way of life. Everything they do is a paradigm of living out a specific way is their faith in God. It's way more saturated, way more in depth than how we comprehend it today. So examples would be like the word faith. Like our context today, we'd say, oh, I'm a man of faith. They would say, oh, so you're a person who has a set of beliefs that you mentally ascend to and have that you agree upon certain doctrine. That makes you a man of faith. When antiquity would say, oh, I am a faithful person, meaning I live a certain way that proves what I believe. Very different. Same with holiness. Where God's saying, be holy as I'm holy. He's not saying, hey, have good intentions about avoiding bad things. And, you know, and feel real sorry when you, when you sin. Just feel real bad about it. Right? No. Repentance is grieving sin and saying, God, I'm sorry. Holiness is then when you turn and say, I'm now consecrating myself. That is holiness in old times. I am setting myself apart. The thing that compromised me, I'm removing it and getting away from it in my life. There is tangible action to holiness. Church, we've got to catch back up to that way of living. There needs to be tangible action to holiness. If we use the phrases like, it's not that bad, we're already compromised. <laughs> I feel like I'm talking, you know, when you're talking to like uh, junior high and you're talking about kissing and they're like, well, how close is too close? <laughs> you're like, you've already, your heart's already, you're, you're screwed. You know, <laughs> let's start over. Come on, we're going to start over. Here we go. You know, like we're already in bad place. 
No, we want to be in a place of saying, God, whatever you are doing, wherever you are located, whatever is your intentions, so it be as with me. And anything in me that is not your heart, not your intentions, not your ways, I remove it. I consecrate myself. I physically, mentally, spiritually, relationally alter, pivot, change so that that's not in my life anymore. Do you hear what I'm saying? That is consecration. That is holiness. I'm telling you right now, you've got to be prepared because if we actually dare be like Jesus, the world will not understand. It calls us a peculiar people. So they're going to look at us and be like, man, I don't get you. And what happens is when you start living righteous, it's going to bring conviction on people around you, and they're going to dare say, you're judging me. When you haven't said a word to them, you're just living different. Hold on, you mean you're not going to go get drunk with me like you used to? Or hold on, girlfriend, boyfriend, we're going to stop sleeping together? Like, what are you talking about? And you're like, I, I just feel like God's inviting me into something of being holy. And I want to respond to him with sincerity. And I don't want it just to be that I apologize for what I do. I want it to be that I turn away from it. And I live differently because I show that I'm consecrating myself to the Lord. And they're going to say, don't judge me. When it has nothing to do with them. They're just going to feel the conviction of the holiness of God on your life. Do not become embittered towards the world when they do that. Remain compassionate and pray that they would do the same. And give grace when they don't understand you because they will not understand you. The other day on Monday, I was watching this documentary on Netflix about the 2008 NBA men's Olympic basketball team. If you're not a sports fan, hang in there with me, because um, I like it. Um, 2004 was the first time and only time we got our booties kicked bad in the Olympics as men's basketball for America, because basketball is established in our nation. We are basketball people, and we have just dominated year after year after year after year. Well, in 2008, we didn't have as good a team because some people were afraid of going over there because of the conflict we were having in the Middle East, so not all of our best players were going, but even still... Player for player, we had the most talented people on the planet on our team, and we still got destroyed. Well, we were like, never again, not Americans. We're proud, and we're not going to do that, and we created basketball. And so we hired Coach K. So I don't know if you know him, but he's the coach of Duke, one of the greatest coaches in college basketball. And they say, Coach K, will you come, and will you uh, help us redeem ourselves? And he says, absolutely. But one thing, he's like, I'm not going to just show up a few months before in 2008, the next Olympics. I want to start coaching them today. And they need to commit to a four-year process with me. And so what they did was all the players had to have a higher level of commitment. And they started coming and doing these 35-day intensives in Las Vegas at this basketball arena where they would train and create teamwork and unity and, and grow as a team as he would coach them. And so this went on for two years. And then 2006, they showed up to do the trials to actually get permission to be in the Olympics. You had to earn your way there. And they got destroyed. And it was shocking. It was embarrassing. We were like, but they've been training for two years. It's the best players in the world. Like, what is happening? And they're super discouraged. Well, Coach K has this idea. He goes, you know what we need to do? We need to, we need to recruit one more team member. And he goes and he asks Kobe Bryant. He says, Kobe Bryant, will you be a part of our 2008 Olympics team? And he agrees to it. And so he flies out to Las Vegas and he joins the team to do these intensives. And immediately he is radically different than all the other players. 
So they're just doing their basic scrimmages, you know, and it's like maybe like a 9 a.m. basketball court morning practice. And all of a sudden, you know, Kobe Bryant goes to post up against somebody, and then, boom, he, like, knocks the dude on his, on his tail and just knocks him down. And he's like, whoa, man, this is just practice. Like, what are you? And he's so aggressive. And they're like, okay, maybe he's the veteran. He's kind of proving his place, you know, to all of us young bucks. You know, maybe that's what it is. But all of a sudden, then he's running on the other end of the court, and he's diving across the table, saving a loose ball, getting it to stay in bounds. And he's like, putting himself on the line to do so. And they're like, man, this guy's crazy. And they think, okay, maybe it's just today. But the next day and the next day and the next day, Kobe Bryant just operates in a different reality. He's just focused and living for something that's different than the rest of the teammates. Well, they end up showing up. They have one more chance to get into the Olympics in this 2007 trials. They show up and they win. And so now they're able to go to the Olympics, and they're so excited that all the team goes out, and they get in a party, and they go to the clubs in Las Vegas, and they, they're in that documentary talking about how great it was and how much fun it was. And then they say they come in, and it's 4.30 in the morning, and they're going to the elevator to go up to their suite at the hotel they're staying. And as they're going to hit the button to get in the elevator, the door's open, and it's Kobe Bryant. And he is walking out of the elevator as they're coming in the elevator. And they're like, oh, Kobe, were you not, what are you doing, man? Like, why didn't you come out? No, man, it's all right. And he just, like, walks by him. Like, where, where are you going? Oh, just going to the gym. And he just doesn't, man, a few words. Wasn't trying to impress him do that. There was no expectation of this. Well, the next morning, 4.30 in the morning, Kobe's up, going to the gym. But you know who came down the elevator with him? LeBron James. And now LeBron James and Kobe are going to the gym together. The next morning, Carmelo Anthony joins him. By the end of the week, all but like two of the players are completely given to working out and getting in shape and living differently. Not only did they win the 2008 Olympics as a narrow people that lived differently, but they dominated. They beat every team by more than 30 points. They lived radically different because they had something that they were focused on. It wasn't just saying no to things. Hear me, church. Holiness isn't just saying no to something, but it's actually saying yes to something else. Okay, I will. So it's not just about (laughs) saying no to something, a.k.a. repentance, though repentance ushers revival in. But then it's consecrating themselves and saying, I'm going to live for something completely different. I want to live differently in a different direction. That night after watching this on Monday, I had a a dream. I woke up Tuesday morning, and I had a dream that I believe is from the Lord. And in this dream, I am able to be a fly on the wall of a man named Jimmy Seibert's life. And it's the weirdest dream. So Jimmy is the founder of the Antioch movement that our church is a part of. He is the, if you come to World Monday, he'll be here on Friday night to speak. I strongly encourage you to come here and speak. And he's a friend, and we love this man. And I'm able to just observe his life in a normal day. And it's so bizarre because I keep seeing him in different places. I see him when he gets up in the morning, and he goes to what he calls his war room. He literally has a room in his house called the war room where he prays and intercedes and reads his word and you know, goes meets with God. And I see him when he's, like, sitting at the breakfast table with his family. And then when he's sitting on the couch, he's, like, reading a book. And I just see how he's living. And then I see him in his car as he's driving and how he's, how he's, he's abiding in his car drive with Jesus. Like, I see him meeting with God in his car, on the way to wherever he's headed. And what's so bizarre is not only am I seeing his deeds, but it's like I can have x-ray vision into his heart, and I'm seeing the means and motives of his heart. And he's outrageously set apart. I don't, I'm not saying Jimmy's not a human. For the record, he's very much human. And I don't know why God gave me this dream, other than when I woke up in the morning, I felt the presence of God on me in my bed, and I just found myself going, oh God, I want to live like that. I want to live differently. I'm willing to be a peculiar person in this world. I'm okay with people not understanding. 
I don't want to just say, oh, I'm really sorry for the sins I've committed. I want to say, God, I want to be consecrated, set apart. I want to live for something totally different, even when no one is looking. And I actually think that's where the potency comes from. It's not when you look right in front of everybody. It's the, it's the discipline of devotion and love of Jesus who is so good to us and merciful to redeem us when we repent to him that we would do that when no one's looking is where the authority really comes. What you do in private is what comes out ultimately in public. And if you cultivate deep disciplines and love and intimacy with God in the private, I promise you it will manifest in outrageous ways in public. As I was processing that, I had to get up and get ready, and I'm, this Tuesday I'm driving to work, and I don't have anything for the first hour of my morning. So I go and I sit in my office, and I'm meeting with God, and I'm praying about it, and immediately I feel like God just puts on me Joshua 3. Just what comes to my mind, Joshua 3, and I'm like, okay. So I'm like, Joshua 3, and I'm opening my Bible, and I'm trying to read Joshua 3, and I am meeting with Jesus in my office. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, this is, this is what happens. So to catch us up in Joshua 3, after the people have done this horrible thing of compromise and God relents and doesn't smite the people of Israel after they build this calf, God says, okay, I'll still take you to the promised land, but I'm not going to go in there with you. And Moses says, no, 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 no. The world can have all the milk and honey, because that's how it describes the promised land. He's like, they can have all the milk and We don't want all the blessings if we don't have you. So then God also, also in his mercy, says, okay, then I'll continue to keep up my faithful covenant to you, and I will go with you. But then Moses dies, and the person to take his place of leader over all the people of Israel was a guy named Joshua. And one thing that's really cool about Joshua is when he was a young man, he would walk near Moses and kind of follow his leadership. And there'd be times they'd go into the tent of meeting, which is a place where God would meet with Moses to talk to him and his, his presence would manifest. And it says after they would get their instructions, Moses would lead, leave to go lead the people, but Joshua would stay in the tent. He's like, I just want to be wherever God is. Whatever he's doing is what I want to do. And now this is the man leading the people of Israel. And what's so significant is God tells Joshua, get up. We're at the edge of the Jordan River. As soon as we cross the Jordan River, we're stepping into the promises of God. The breakthrough, the revival, the things that we're longing for, the things that have been promised to our fathers of old as the people of God, stepping into the, the fulfillment of God. We're about to be in revival, guys. He says, oh, but one thing, and then this is what Joshua does. He yells to the people in verse 5 of, verse, of chapter 3. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. But he recognizes the Lord will not do amazing things among you if you do not consecrate yourselves. Because he's recalling what happened not too far in his past of how God almost smited them because they were so quick to be compromised as people. So he's like, hey guys, let's not, let's not quench the spirit of God. Let's not, let's not stop revival because sin kills revival. But you know what? Let's consecrate ourselves. Let's set ourselves apart so that we might step into the fullness of what God wants to give us. And then, I love this, I kept getting stirred by this. I was like, oh. So it goes on and it says, in verse 6, So Joshua told the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. Now I want to pause here. The Ark of the Covenant is this golden box that God tells them to build. It's not idolatry. It's a box that God gives them commandment on how to build. They put the, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of, of the commands of God in it. And then God's presence says, I'm going to permanently rest in there. So physically, when these priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, they are physically carrying the presence of God on themselves. So this is a crazy deal. This isn't small. And it's so important that they'd have these poles that would keep them away from the actual box because if they touched the box, God's glory was so significant on it that people were falling down dead. So we're talking like God was showing up. 
All right, let's pick up with me. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I am with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's water, go and stand in the river. Now, this is, again, maybe this is a little nuanced and it's just speaking to me, but I feel like God has a word for us in this. First of all, we know that in 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, but you are a chosen people, you, me, us Christians in the room, followers of Jesus. We're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So we're looking at Old Testament priests, and now God's saying, you have the same job. Did you know that you were to wake up in the morning and you were to say, God, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to carry your very presence on my life today? Did you know that that's what we're called to do and that we can sustain it? There's a grace of God that we might carry his presence on us. So that's far more than just saying, I'm sorry and I repent of sin, but it's a turning and consecrating and saying, God, instead, I'm going to pick up you and I'm going to carry you on my life, not compromise. I'm going to carry the very presence of God. And it tells us that as the, as the priest would carry this, it says it would tell the people which way to go. We want to bring revival into our city. How are they going to know where to go if the church doesn't carry his presence? We're the ones to model to the world what revival looks like because we ourselves are being revived by God. So as we carry him, we pick him up and we move forward, the world will follow our lead as we are humble, devoted, sincerely repentant people who say, God, I consecrate ourselves to you and you alone. Nothing else but you and you alone. And then this is the last thing I want to say. And it said, when you reach the edge of the water, Jordan's water, this is verse eight, go and stand in the river. And this might seem cheesy, but I just want to tell you what God spoke to me. We call this place up here in the front the river. And I know that's Christianese and we probably need to cut that out. But, but we call this place the river. And we jokingly call it that because it's a place where we say, hey, you know, if you respond to God, he's going to meet you where you are. And, you know, he's like a river. He's going to wash over you. He's going to cleanse you. He's going to heal you. He's going to forgive you. He's going to meet with you. And we often tell people, come to the river, you know, come, come up here. And what's so significant is as priests, we're the ones who first go to the river before other people can. And so what the Lord said to me as I was sitting there meeting with God, being stirred by his affection, he says, Adam, you first have to be a responder before you can be a facilitator of my presence. Do not think for a moment you're going to go bring revival into your home or your workplace or down the street if you aren't being revived in your own heart. Revival starts in us. It starts in me. It's me saying, God, I repent of sin. God, not only am I sorry, and I, I'm sorry that it's grieved your heart and I've sinned against you and you alone, but God, I'm going to change my mind and I'm going to turn 100 degrees and I'm going to consecrate myself. And I'm going to throw off anything that hinders. I'm going to remove myself from that, knowing that it's with you and you alone, that I'm fulfilled and that you are glorified and that I be revived and that I become a revival facilitator. And this is the invitation of the Lord to us, church. No repentance, no revival. No holiness, no consecration, no sustained revival. God's asking us to repent and he's asking us to be consecrated today. He's saying, I want to pour my spirit out on you in power and in presence in a dominating, transformative, polarizing sort of way where you're going, I can't live the same. But if you're trying to co-mingle worship where you're worshiping the things of this world and God, you're going to have a hard time. If you're becoming impatient with God's timing and you're just quick to find other things to give yourself to, you're going to have a hard time. But if we're willing to say you and you alone, will I follow? And not only am I saying no to things, but God, to, today, right now, God, I wanna, 
I want to clothe myself in you. I want to carry you like the priest did. Not only that I might know which way to go, but as I live, other people will say, I now know where to go. I know where to meet with God because I see God on you. That is revival. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to go into a time of response. And right now, I'm going to ask you to come to the river. Do not measure your sin in scale. Sin is sin and it separates us from God. If you need to repent of a small sin, whatever that means, I don't think there's actually sizes to it too much, repent of it. If you need to repent of significant sin, repent of it. If you've been trying to mask thing with Christian language, but you know it's actually polluted worship to the Lord, come repent to it. There is an invitation of God's mercy to us as a people saying, if you repent, I'll bring my presence. And my presence won't only hear you when you repent, but I'll forgive you and I will heal your land. Who doesn't want that, church? Who doesn't want to be restored? Who doesn't want to be healed? Who doesn't want to be revived and refreshed and set free? The bondage that you came in with, you do not have to leave with. God loves to heal people. If you have addiction, let's get prayer today. Come up and get prayer and let God meet you where you are. God moves on a repented people, not a proud one and not a perfect one, but just a humble people say, God, I need you. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to lead us, but I really feel like God's wanting to do something significant and holiness and impurity. Specifically on purity, I felt like how in the people of Israel, when they kept compromising their sin, it got worse and worse, and it ended up specifically in a, a perverse sexual reality. Some of us walk around with a lot of sexual brokenness, and it's just so shaming. We just, we feel so dirty. And I just picture my mind in the river, God just washing over you, and it's just gone. God is just restoring you. And so if sexual sin is part of your situation, I believe God wants to set you free today. God wants to restore marriages in the way that it's impacted marriages. So if you're married and your marriage is hurting, come get restored today. But God comes on a humble, repentant people who say, I'm going to turn away from my wicked ways and I'm going to go and carry the very presence of God in my life moving forward. Lord, will you come and will you do this today? God, will you come and will you bring healing and restoration Will you come in the river and will you wash over people right now? I pray that right now you will come not only just in presence, but in power that's tangible. We're asking for your manifest presence to fall on us in a way that heals us and washes us and cleanses us, God. We repent right now of sin. And I ask that, God, that, that you, you, you family, be specific. Don't speak in generals. I repent for sexual perversion in my life. I repent for addiction. I repent for insecurities that's caused me to compare and to gossip. I repent for being destructive in relationships. I, I repent of selfishness and greed. I repent of my own vain imagination where I start to make up stories in my mind of what reality is and I get all emotional and worked up about it and I don't even have any bearings for it to be true. God, I, I, I repent where I try to play the, the Christian thing and worship you sometimes, but I also worship other lovers and I have a polluted, perverse worship. God, I set those things down right now in Jesus' name. And I fix my eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, throwing off everything that hinders that I might run the race as if to receive the prize. God, I'm asking, Father, for men and women to rise up right now in righteousness and in purity and holiness. God, that we are covenanting with you again and saying, God, make us be a holy people. 
God, we can't do it on our own. We need your power. We need your presence. We need your leadership to keep us humble, God, to keep us aware of our need for you, Jesus, that we wouldn't continue to get complacent and comfortable and then lazy and sluggard in our faith. God, but we want to be those who do the work of the faith that daily we wake up and we say, I need you today, maybe even more than yesterday. Would you come and would you lead me, God? I put on your presence today and I ask that you would lead every step and I reject every form of evil, every form of compromise. God, I pray that you would heal minds that feel addicted to sin. I specifically have this thought of, of, of like perpetual images, if it's sexual or if it's, maybe it's, that sounds funny, but maybe it's shopping, if it's like compulsive shopping or spending of money as a way to like cope and feel better. I just feel like God is wanting to heal your mind of those habits, of, those, of, of the way that the neurons in your brain fire. God, I pray right now that you would rewire brains right now in Jesus' name, that you would restore thoughts and renew minds right now in Jesus' name. God, I pray that you would, you would help us think rightly about all things, that we can enjoy your creation, but we never worship it. We enjoy what you've made, but it's not the same as you. We worship and we give our full allegiance to you and you alone. God, would you come and would you help us be consecrated people? Would you come and help us be set apart? Who cares about receiving promises from God if he's not with us, church? We want to be where he is, and if we are compromised, sin separates us from him, and we want to be close to him. So come draw near to the heart of God, because he is quick to mercy. He's quick to forgiveness. He's not making you plead too much. You don't have to say it in just a special way, or if you say it 10 times in a row, maybe he'll hear you. The first time your, your heart begins to acknowledge him is the very moment he begins to engage with healing, and engage with mercy, engage with grace. The moment your heart turns to him, so just turn your heart right now, church. He's drawing near. Do you feel him? He's coming, he's comforting you, and he's healing you. And I think the biggest noise that he's saying is, I love you. The reason why I hate sin is because it hurts my relationship with you, and I love you so much. I want to do life with you. Don't believe the lie that you have to go do things for me. That's religion. But I want to go do things with you because I love you. God, we want to be responders today for our own personal revival. God, come revive our hearts right now. Revive us, stir our affections for you. Ruin us for the ordinary. May the world be so unattractive, God. Whatever it is, that shiny thing that draws our attention, we just, I ask that it go away right now. Just go away. Because nothing satisfies like Jesus. Nothing meets the needs of a heart like Jesus. Nothing is more faithful and more keeping of promises than Jesus. As you've kept it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as you've kept it with the people of Israel and with Joshua, God, would you keep it with us? May we be faithful to you as you once again say, I'm faithful to you. I'm faithful to you, church. I will be your God. And we say back to you, yes, you will be our God and we will be your people. Lord, will you lead us? Will you lead us now in your presence? May we be responders long before we're facilitators. May we have a revival in our own heart before we see revival in our city. But come and bring your revival presence. Come bring your revival power. Right now, Jesus, come and stir us. Come cleanse us. Come heal us. Create hunger in us, God. If we're starting to get complacent, even right now, God, we're not looking at the clock. We don't care about time. We want Jesus. We're hungry this morning. Come, you promised to feed those who hunger and thirst. God, would you show up and you feed us with your affections. Would come feed us with your presence. Come feed us with your power. Come heal and renew. 
We invite you to come, God. We throw off everything that hinders in Jesus' name.